The following resource is brought to you by Real Life Community Church in Richmond, Kentucky. We hope you're both challenged and encouraged by this message from Pastor Chris May. Hunter just asked me, are we finally in chapter 10? I said, no, one more week. So uh, chapter 9, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, when we hear the word ministry, or when we hear the phrase work of the ministry, we often think of pastors and missionaries and other vocational ministers, right? But do you know that one of the greatest joys and privileges of the Christian life is that every one of us is called to ministry? Every one of us. How amazing is that? That we get to partner with the Lord for His kingdom purposes. Growing up, I'll never forget when the Nintendo gaming console came out. I thought the Atari 2600 was good. And then that Nintendo came out, come on somebody, and I thought it's never going to get better than this. Now, I didn't get a Nintendo right away, but my brother and I were very fortunate because my brother's best friend, Tyler Atkins, who lived two houses down from us, got a Nintendo. Now, if you have kids or if you remember back to your childhood, when there are multiple kids in the room with one gaming console, there's a little bit of tension, a little bit of frustration because each child has to wait his or her turn to play the game. It can get tense. Come on, parents, you know what I'm talking about. But we lucked out, my brother and I, because Tyler was really weird. <laughs> he didn't want to play video games. He loved to watch us play. He had a Nintendo. He would invite us over. We'd go down to his basement, and for hours upon end, my brother and I would play Mario Brothers and Duck Hunt, and he would watch. Some of y'all are like, mm-hmm, preach, Pastor. Mario and Duck Hunt, right? You remember that. Remember they were on one disc or cartridge? I guess it wasn't even a disc. Well, today is, is Super Bowl Sunday. Some of you are avid. Many of you are avid football fans, yeah? You're excited for the game today. But many of you who are fans have never played a day of football in your life. Is that true? And... and you don't intend to ever play a game of football in your life because you like your brain cells and you don't want a concussion, right? You're like, I, I don't have anything, I don't have any uh, brain cells to lose, right? Like I can't afford to lose any. But you know that in the gaming world and in the sports world, it's completely acceptable to be a mere spectator. You can be a fan of football, a fan of video games, and you can, and, and you're welcome just to watch and enjoy the game. But I'll tell you this, Christianity is not a spectator sport. 
It is not an option to sit on the sidelines. Every single Christian is called to be in the game. And I think it's great news. I think it's a great privilege. So today, I want to just point out, we're all called to ministry. It's like, well, what's that mean? Well, I want to point out three facets of Christ-exalting ministry that every one of us are called to. Three facets of Christ-exalting ministry. Guess what I forgot to do again? I've got note sheets sitting on the printer. <laughs> I'm giving them to you. Give me time to think about what I'm going to say. How are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, thank you. <laughs> ben asked me to dance earlier. Now I'm tempted. Sorry, I want you to be able to follow along. We have a new volunteer position. It's called Notes Passer Outer on Sunday mornings. Any volunteers? Hunter, okay. Matthew, do you mind to close those doors in the back? By the way, Dylan, when you edit the sermon, please cut this out. Uh, because, yeah, we'll lose some people. Everybody good? Leave some in the back for who's got some people still coming in. <clears throat> Thanks, guys. All right, so recap. Christianity is not a spectator sport. We're all called to be in the game. Are you with me? So we're looking at three facets of Christ-exalting ministry. What does our ministry look like? Because uh, let, let me say this. The text that we're in today is, in one sense, particular uh, to the 12 apostles. And in another sense, it is universal. And so I really want to focus on that universal aspect this morning. So three facets of Christ-exalting ministry. Number one is proclamation. Proclamation. I want you to look with me at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all of the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. He went around proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So it says he went through all the cities throughout, and, and the villages, by the way, throughout the cities of Galilee. Now, what's the difference in a city and a village? Well, a city was normally fortified. A village was not. And the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in the Galilee region, there was no less than 200 cities and villages. And scholars get this estimate that there were at least about three million people in that area, most of them likely encountered the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus went around proclaiming. He went around teaching. And he went around 
healing. That's what his threefold ministry looks like. Let's take these one by one. It says that he went from town to town, city to city, village to village, teaching in the synagogues. Now, synagogues were these places of worship where the Jews met. Now, pre-exile, before God's people were sent into exile, the, the main place of worship was the temple. Like, almost everybody would come and worship at the temple, all of the Jews. But after the exile, as people were scattered, that wasn't feasible. So what would happen is that synagogues would pop up all over the place. And if you had 10 Jewish men, you could legally, by Jewish law, have a synagogue. Just an interesting fact, uh, I found out this week that many of the synagogues, the, the buildings or the structures did not have roofs on them so that the people could look up to heaven and worship God. Kind of cool fact, isn't it? Well, it says that Jesus went around teaching in the, the synagogue. So synagogue meetings would include prayers. They would include blessings. They would include teachings. As a matter of fact, the, the Jewish philosopher uh, Philo, who lived in Alexandria during Jesus' ministry, wrote, quote, that the synagogues are mainly for the detailed reading and exposition of Scripture, end quote. I think that's what church should be about today, too, the exposition of Scripture. should include every, other things, but the synagogue was structured around hearing the Word of God read and then explained. That's one of our core values here as well. But teaching of Scripture was a... a in, in the synagogue was a privilege that was often extended to rabbis, uh, teachers, dignitaries who would be traveling around. And so Jesus often took advantage of that opportunity. And so he went from city to city teaching uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures in, in the synagogues. Now, the ministry of teaching is particular. It's not universal. I would argue we have too many people trying to teach in the church today. Uh, let me just read you a verse. You don't have to turn here, but James 3.1 says this. Not many of you should become teachers. You say, why? Well, he says, for you know that we teach, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Listen, I promise you, anybody who knows me well knows that I get up here week after week in fear and trembling. Because your spiritual lives are in my hands at that point, And I will be held accountable for everything that I say. So Jesus went around teaching. Secondly, he went around healing. We've looked at this over the last several weeks. Uh, Matthew 8 and 9 uh, bring us this cluster of Jesus' miracles. And uh, over and over and over, he would just heal people. And he would cast demons out of people and all of these wonderful things. And what was the purpose of those miracles? Well, Matthew 8 tells us it was to show us to fulfill the Old Testament scriptures and show that he was, in fact, the Messiah. So he went around teaching, he, he went around healing, and then thirdly, he went around proclaiming. He went around proclaiming. Look at verse 35. He went throughout the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming, what was he proclaiming? The gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. It's like, well, what is that? Well, when we think of the kingdom of God, it, it's not so much about a particular place, but it is about the rule and the reign of God. 
It is, and it also constitutes the people of God. Anyone who is in Christ, any believer in Christ, is part of the kingdom of God. So it's about God's rule and reign, uh, particularly upon the earth. So Jesus came in part. He came in part to inaugurate God's kingdom on the earth through his life, his death, and his resurrection. He spent his earthly ministry inviting people into this kingdom. Friends, what a privilege it is because you and I are still invited to be a part of this kingdom today. He invites us to come to him and to get to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And a wonderful invitation it is. And so Jesus came to the earth to inaugurate the kingdom. And how many know he's coming about back again to consummate the kingdom? And we look forward to that day. How many would just say, come quickly, Lord Jesus? Amen. So Jesus spent his earthly ministry proclaiming this message of the kingdom. It's what we call the gospel. And the great news is this. This is a facet of Jesus' ministry that we all share in. Because every single one of us are called to proclaim, to preach the gospel to those who are far from God. It's not just the job of the pastors and the missionaries. Now, some of you have come to me as, Lord, would you, or not, you don't call me Lord. Chris, Chris, would you just pray to the Lord? Uh, let me just clarify that. Uh, Chris, would you just pray to the Lord? And, because my, you know, I, I need somebody to go. And, and share Jesus with my brother or my co-worker. And it's like, well, I'll do that, but how about you go? Because you're called as much as I am to proclaim the gospel to lost, the lost people. And let me just give you a couple verses here. Flip over with me. Keep your finger there in Matthew. And go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And look with me at verse 9. Peter writes to these Christians, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And pay special attention to this next part. That you might proclaim or preach the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are called to proclaim his excellencies, to proclaim the good news of Jesus, to tell people about who he is and what he has done. And let me just give you one more verse. You don't have to turn here. Acts 8, verses 1 through 4. And it said, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Okay, so pay attention there. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So it wasn't just the apostles preaching the word. It was those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Proclamation. Friends, every one of us is called to proclaim the good news of Jesus. I love the story of the world-renowned violinist Fritz Kreisler. He earned a fortune with his concerts and his compositions, 
But he was known to be a, a radically generous man. He gave almost everything he had away. He just loved music and wasn't in it for the money. But as he was traveling one time, he came upon this exquisite violin that he desperately wanted. But because he gave all his money away, he, or most of his money away, he didn't have uh, the funds for it. But he desperately wanted it, so he, he went home and he began to, to play other concerts and things, and he saved his money, and he went back to the cellar to purchase that exquisite violin. But to his great dismay, found out that it had been sold to a collector. So he received, he, he asked the, the clerk for the collector's address, and, and it was given to him. And so he went to the collector's home, and he said, Listen, I know that you bought this particular violin and I really want to purchase it. I've got the money, and I want to buy it from you. But the collector said it was his prized possession. He said, you know what? I'm, I'm not going to sell it. I'm not interested, no matter how much money you offer. So Chrysler began to, to walk out with his head hung low. And, but then he had an idea. He said, listen, he turned around. He said, sir, he said, if you wouldn't mind, could I just play the violin one time? Just one time. And the collector acquiesced, and so he took the violin, and he just played this beautiful music that touched so deeply the heart of the collector. And here's what the collector exclaimed. He said, I have no right to keep that to myself. Take it. It's yours. Take it to the world and let people hear it. Friends, we have the greatest treasure in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that treasure is not meant to be kept to ourselves within these four walls. It's meant to be shouted from the rooftops, to be taken to a lost and dying world. So one facet of Christ's exalting ministry is gospel proclamation. The second is this. It's perseverance. Jesus experienced persecution and opposition. That's a vast understatement, isn't it? He was ultimately crucified owing to his faith and who he claimed to be. I want to take you in, our, in Matthew chapter 9 to last week's text, just back a couple of verses. Go with me to verse 33. Remember, Jesus has just healed two blind men. And now he comes upon this demon-possessed man, and, and look what happens. He, he casts the demon out. Verse 33, and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man smote, spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees, these are the religious leaders, saw it, and they said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. Jesus was doing these great miracles, and how did the Pharisees respond? They responded in hatred in contempt and skepticism. And this was not just a one-off occasion. This was the normal response of many people to Jesus' ministry. But what did Jesus do? What did, what did he do in response to their response? Well, let's look again at verse 35. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages teaching, proclaiming, and healing. In other words, a real simple point here. He kept doing what God had called him to do. He kept doing what God had called him to do. And friends, you and I are called to continue to fight the good fight of faith no matter what we face. 
Because when we take on the, the ministry of proclamation, we will experience per, uh, persecution. Let me just give you a few verses here. One, if you want to flip with me to John chapter first, or 15, verse 18. John 15, 18. Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you're in Matthew, you can go back to chapter 5 with me, verse 10. This is part of the Beatitudes. Blessed or happy are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said, not only should you expect to be persecuted, but actually, if you are persecuted for His sake, you are blessed. Let me just read you one more. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life, and I hope that's you, all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Oh, is that ever true in our culture? You live by biblical standards, you will be hated and you will be persecuted. Now, most Christians in America will never die for their faith unless they're called to be a missionary overseas or whatever. Most of us will probably not be physically harmed for our faith, but who knows? I mean, with the way things are going, you never know. But that's not in the foreseeable future. But we will experience some form, some level of persecution. We probably have all at some point, if we're living this life out, we've been mocked been ridiculed. We, we now, because of biblical, the biblical standards that we live by, we're called bigots and closed-minded people and... We, we could be uh, eventually, I, I might, for, for the things that I preach, just preaching the Bible, be arrested for a hate crime someday. That's very possible. And so, on one hand, when, when we look at the, the level of persecution that we face, and we consider then, well, what about the people in Afghanistan right now whose very lives are in jeopardy? It's kind of like, well, can we even call what we're going through persecution? So that's one perspective, but I want to be careful there. Because on the other hand, I think that though our physical lives may not be in danger here and now in this country because of our faith, like rejection is really hurtful. And it, it takes a toll on us. And I, I don't want to underestimate that. As a matter of fact, this is interesting. Psychology Today reported that these MRI studies have been shown that when we experience rejection the same areas of the brain become activated as when we experience physical pain. Rejection hurts. How many can honestly remember a time in your childhood, elementary school, middle school, high school, or some point in your, your, your young life that you were rejected, that, that you were not included in some group, that you were not invited to be part of some team, that you were shunned by some other kids? And that thought kind of pops in your mind every now and then. And you're like, why in the world? Why, why would, I mean, this is three decades later. Like, why in the world would that bother me? Why would I even think of that? It's because rejection really does something to us. So I don't want to downplay that. But I'll tell you this, no matter what level of persecution we face, you and I are called to continue to serve the Lord our God. We don't back down from proclaiming the gospel. We do not back down from biblical truth. We do not back down from living out our biblical convictions. We're called to persevere.
Now, one of the reasons that we wanted to bless our police officers, we did a police officer outreach back in December, is because I've just been blown away by our officers across our country. They are publicly being hated and mocked and ridiculed. Yet think about this. They are still laying, many of them, laying their lives down on the line every single day for the very people who mock them and ridicule them. It's like, wow. It kind of reminds me of somebody else I've heard of. Is that not what Jesus did? He laid his life down for the very people who, who ridiculed him. He just continued to, to preach the gospel and do the will of the Father in the face of opposition. And we must do that as well. When we're persecuted, what do we do? We lay our lives down for the people who are persecuting us. It's like, how do you do that? Well, you can't muster up your own strength to do that. It only comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. May God grant us that power. The third facet of ministry. So we have proclamation. We have perseverance. The third facet of Christ's exalting ministry is compassion. Look with me at verse 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Let's just consider for a moment the compassion of Jesus. We've seen it uh, demonstrated, this, this compassion of Jesus demonstrated throughout Matthew chapter 8 and 9. Uh, we, we've seen this with, uh, remember the man with leprosy, leprosy. He was put outside of the gates and he was abandoned by the religious community and he was sick and he had this horrible skin disease and yet Jesus pursued him, approached him and healed him and restored him to his community. The woman with the issue of blood, remember she'd been sick for 12 years and Jesus healed her. Allowed her to touch the hem of his garment. Remember J. Iris who was just beside himself because his daughter had died. And Jesus took time to go and to raise his little girl from the dead. And last week we saw he healed the, the two blind men and he set the demon possessed uh, man free and countless other miracles in Matthew 8 and 9. And then you think about the other times in Matthew. Actually, there's three other times that Matthew explicitly mentions the compassion of Jesus. I'm not going to read these, but it, I, I think I put them on your note sheets. But he talks about having compassion to heal, compassion to feed. And here's what I see when I put all of this together. Number one, Jesus cared about the physical needs of people. He cared about the physical needs of people. Like, he welcomed the marginalized. He went to the bro broken. He went to the sick. He healed them. He fed the hungry. Jesus cares about the physical needs of people. But we see in our text today that it doesn't stop there. Friends, he cares about the spiritual needs of people. Enough to come and lay his life down for the sheep. Matthew 9, 36, it says, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The metaphor of sheep and shepherds was a familiar one in, in Israel's history. Israel's leaders were likened to shepherds, and so when it was said that Israel was like a sheep without a shepherd. It meant they didn't have a leader, a king, a prophet, some other form of leadership. And so, for instance, 
Numbers 27, 17, uh, this is where God appointed Joshua, the leader after Moses. And it says that this was so that the Lord's people would not be like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus came to be the good shepherd. Amen. The, the phrase here in this verse, had compassion. In the Greek, it is the verb form of the noun that literally refers to the bowels or the intestines. This is really interesting. Here's what I think Matthew is trying to get across to us. When Jesus saw and considered the lost state of the crowds, he felt it. How many of you have ever felt so badly for someone that you love that's in pain that you yourself have become physically ill? Have you ever felt that? Uh, remember this last year, many of you know our, our story, our youngest son uh, went off to uh, infantry training, AIT, in Fort Benning, Georgia, with the Army National Guard. And uh, before he left, he had mono, so we were already concerned about him. But then he got there, he got COVID and had a list of other ail ailments. He was sick almost the entire time. And I'll tell you, for those, uh, what was it, 12, 13, 14 weeks that he was there, my family, uh, the, the, the three of us, Dylan, Nikki, and myself, we never wanted to eat. We, we couldn't eat. We, we skipped dinner almost every night because we were physically ill because of what our son was enduring in Georgia. Many of you have been there. I would venture to say all of you have been there at some point. So when Jesus saw the crowds, it, it was like it, it made him sick because he saw their desperation. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders who were supposed to be leading them, they were not doing a good job. They were... Uh, they wrongly interpreted the scriptures. They were self-seeking. They were self-righteous. They didn't care about the people. And so then Jesus changed his metaphor from shepherding to farming. He looked out and he saw this great harvest of people. But he said, listen, there's no laborers. There's not enough laborers to work the harvest. And his response was to have the disciples to pray for the laborers. And by the way, when they prayed for the laborers, you'll see in uh, chapter 10 next week that they were the, actually the answer to their own prayer. Because it's God called the disciples to him, or Jesus called next, the next uh, section says, Jesus called those disciples to himself, and then he sent them out. Jesus prayed for laborers. His heart was broken for these people. And so, and, and this was all because Jesus had compassion for the lost, and he still has compassion for the lost. And friends, you and I, this is a facet of our ministry. You and I are have to have the ministry of compassion. And by the way, we're not just called to feel compassionate, compassionately. Like it's it's not like, well, oh sure, I, I'm compassionate. It's like, well, what are you doing about it? It's like love. We're, we're not just called to to have these feelings of as, of love as Christians. We're called to act. Loving, to do loving things. Does that make sense? It's the same with compassion. So compassion, true God-given compassion should move us to action. Number one, it should move us to sacrificial love. It should move us to sacrificial love. Jesus spent his earthly ministry spending and being spent for the good of others and for the glory of God. 
He wasn't taking vacations and, and, and just, hey, I'm Lord, you know, like wave me with palm branches. They did at, at, their, at palm, palm Sunday, but that's not what he was after. He was there to lay his life down for people. And Paul said the same thing about his own ministry. Let me just read you a text from 2 Corinthians 12, 15. Paul is writing to the Christians at Corinth and he says, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I know everyone in here has somebody that you know that is far from Jesus. And let me just ask you this question, very simple. Are you willing to spend and be spent for the good of their souls? We are called not just to proclamation, but we are called to good works that should accompany the proclamation of the gospel. What's that mean? Well, read the Sermon on the Mount. It's to be merciful. It's to be generous. It's to be forgiving. It's to serve others relentlessly. That's one aspect of compassion. God calls us to selflessly serve those around us. Then there's another aspect of compassion. Compassion should move, move us to pursue the lost. Not just to serve them, but actually when they need help. But when, we should actually go after them. Jesus went to the over 3 million people in Galilee alone because he cared about their spiritual state. He didn't wait for them to come to him. He went from city to city to village to village because he cared about lost people. Now, I just want to ask you, how often are you and I willing to step outside of our comfort zones and go to places that some Christians say we shouldn't go to reach the lost? One Sunday evening, William Booth was walking in London with his son, who at the time was about 12 or 13 years old. And the father surprised his son by taking him to a saloon. The place was crowded. It was filled with this kind of atmosphere. You could smell the, uh, the, the out stench of alcohol and, and stale smoke. The room was full of drunks and very violent people. And Booth's son was just perplexed, like, Dad, seriously? <laughs> but he looked at his son and he said to his son, these are our people. These are the people I want you to live for and bring to Christ. Years later, his son said, the impression never left me. Friends, we've got to quit avoiding lost people who are different than us and start running after them. There's another aspect of compassion, and it's that it should, compassion should move up on us in such a way that it changes our perception, uh, perspective, our perception, the way that we see other people. Pastor Douglas uh, Sean O'Donnell shared a story that he had in an electronic store years ago, just two days before Christmas. You can imagine the scene, right? He went to purchase a new radio player for his hip Dodge Caravan. <laughs> his stereo had went, went out. and uh, So, yeah, so he goes to this electronic store. He went there, and he, and, and he went to pick out his, uh, his new stereo. And the place w w was just very, very busy. And so when he found the stereo he wanted, the salesman took it out of the lock case, and, and he said, listen, I can't just give this to you. I'm going to have to uh, escort you up to the front. I'll give it to the clerk. And so he did that. He took him to the front, and then he gave it to the clerk, but he said, hey, you've got to go to the back of the line. 
Well, Donald said the line was like to infinity and beyond. You've been to Walmart, right? As he stood in line, he became frustrated, and he said he, began, he developed this really critical spirit towards the people around him. Let me just read you his words from this point. He said, I looked at the guy who escorted me to the front. There he was, two aisles away, flirting with some co-worker. He was probably 30 years old, had greased back hair, and was kind of frumpy looking. I thought to myself, what's he living for? I bet he lives at home, takes a class or two at a local community college to pacify his worried mother, works part-time at this store, and then spends most of his paycheck on video games, the latest electronic gadgets, fast food, and Friday night drinking binges with his buddy. He said, then I looked at the people in line with me. We were all roped in this thing together like sheep being led to a slaughter. He said, a woman was doing her best to corral us, prodding us to move along. He said, now remember, I had nothing in my hand. My radio, too valuable for my potently thieving hands to touch, was waiting patiently for me. But everyone around me had carts full of stuff, expensive electronic stuff. He writes, so I began to think, what's this world coming to? And what are these people living for? Do they have enough money to buy all this? From the looks of them, they sure don't. And if they do, what does it profit a man? He gets all spiritual. To gain a big screen TV, but to lose his soul. How long, O oh Lord, must the righteous wait for your deliverance? But then there was a shift. He said, then my pseudo-Christian thoughts of disgust turned into compassion. I now looked at them and thought, has anyone ever taught you how to handle money? Has anyone ever taught you what to live for? Has anyone ever taught you the way of salvation? He said, out of compassion, I wanted to round them all up, bring them to church, and preach to them the true meaning of Christmas, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that Jesus came to seek and save lost sheep. We live in a hateful world. The atmosphere of our country right now is beyond anything I thought I would ever experience in my lifetime. And you know part of the problem? Christians often are as ugly acting as the secular world. We see people who have these very odd <laughs> uh, and strange political ideas. We see these people who are fighting for all kinds of loose morality. They're wanting to redefine marriage, all of these things. And we tend to look at them with a critical eye and say, how dare they? What are they living for? Morons, fools. I'm being very serious. What if, out of compassion, we had a perspective change? And we said, Lord, send me to them to love them, to serve them, and to proclaim the gospel to them that their hearts may be changed and their eternities may be changed. We're called to be that kind of people that are fueled by compassion. We're called to the ministry of compassion. So in closing, let me just compel us and remind us to be workers 
in the ministry. It's not your preacher's job alone. Every one of us have a place. Get in the game. We're called to proclaim the message of Jesus unashamedly. We're called to persevere by the help of the Holy Spirit, even in the face of the greatest persecution. And we're called to have compassion on those who are far from God. We must be willing to spend and be spent for the good of others and the glory of God. One final story. The Times reporter of New Philadelphia, Ohio, back in 1985, reported on a celebration of that, that happened at a New Orleans municipal pool. The party around the pool was held to celebrate the first summer in memory without a drowning at that particular New Orleans city pool. In honor of the occasion, 200 people gathered. 100 of them were lifeguards. As the parting was breaking up and the four lifeguards on duty began to clean up, and clear the pool, they found a fully dressed body in the deep end. They tried to re revive Jerome Moody, age 31, but it was too late. He had drowned, surrounded by lifeguards, celebrating their successful season. Friends, we're like lifeguards. People are swimming in dangerous waters all around us. It's your work. Students at your school. This even includes your family members for some of you. They're swimming in these dangerous waters. We have what they need to be rescued. So in our Sunday morning celebration, I would just beg you, let's not let them drown. Let's pray. God, thank you for the privilege the privilege of being called to ministry. The privilege that you've given us to proclaim the gospel, to help play a part in the transformation of human beings, to change their eternal destinies. Father, we know that there are many lost people that we come in contact every day, people that we know. And then when we're in stores, these electronic stores, these shopping malls or grocery stores. Father, we're surrounded by people that don't know you. And Lord, forgive us for looking at those people who don't look like the, us, act like us, live by the same morals. Forgive us for looking at them with a judgmental and critical eye. Renew our hearts. Remind us of who we were apart from Jesus. That we are who we are by the grace of God. And may we extend that same grace to those who are far from you. Instead of criticizing and instead of being ugly towards others, may we pursue them. May we spend and be spent for the good of others and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know more about how you can have a relationship with Jesus Christ, or if you have questions about our church, you can email us at info at myrealchurch.org. Real Life Community Church is located at 335 Glendon Avenue in Richmond, Kentucky. We invite you to join us for worship Sunday at 1045 a.m. or Wednesday at 7 p.m. Visit us online at myrealchurch.org.